Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Have you ever noticed, picture this, you're watching the news or whatever, and someone is being interviewed, someone who has lost a loved one, for instance. Two things happen. These two things are inevitable, it seems. One, they start to cry. And two, what's the first thing they say when they start to cry? They say, I'm sorry. And they try to stop. I think one of the tragedies of our culture is that for some reason we are ashamed to show emotion. I mean, happiness, sure, we're allowed to be happy and excited. We're even allowed to be pissed off or angry or frustrated or disgusted, but afraid, sad, heartbroken? Don't even think about it. The messages we receive all the time are that we aren't supposed to feel these things. What is that? Are they thought of as showing, I don't know, weakness? Is that what it is? But why? Why is it weak to be honest about what you're feeling? Sometimes you're even accused of being fake if you show these emotions. But I tell you what, screw that. I will not apologize for feeling the way I feel. Part of it might be the theater background. I'm not sure. As actors, we learn empathy. We have to study people to study our characters. We have to feel things in order to portray a character in a deep way. And that's why actors tend to be very connected to our emotions. Actors tend to be some of the most genuine people I know. I also think it's healthy to express what I'm feeling. It is not weak to admit that I am sad or afraid or heartbroken or anything. It is honest. I don't want anyone to show honest emotion and feel that they have to say, I'm sorry for crying. If something makes me cry, I am damn well going to cry and be unapologetic about it. I also think it's important to be honest about what you're feeling so you can be supported. Not that you need to broadcast your every up and down moment, but if something tragic has happened, share it with people you're close to so they can support you. I was close friends with a woman who had a miscarriage and didn't tell me. That's her prerogative. She's allowed to confide or not confide in whomever. But later when I found out, I felt horrible because I could have been a much more supportive friend, but I simply didn't know. And you know, that's okay if she didn't need or want my support. But then years later, it turned out she blamed me for not supporting her. She blamed me for a bunch of stuff that I didn't know about. So that's no good. If you don't tell somebody, don't blame them for not knowing. Anyway, that's a little off track, but my point is this. Be honest with yourself about what you're feeling and allow yourself to be honest with others. COVID is hard. It's hard being isolated. It's hard not being able to see all my friends, all my family. Christmas parties canceled. The Christmas Eve fondue happening virtually with no family and no friends joining us in person. 
No hugging, no clinking glasses in our toasts to each other's good health. Who would have guessed at the beginning of all this that we would still be in this position at Christmas? I don't mind telling you that I have had lots of down days and often find myself crying. I don't live in fear of contracting COVID because of my circumstances, for which I am very thankful. But I do fear for other people, a lot of other people. I am really sad that I won't be seeing my kids in person at Christmas. But it's a sacrifice we're all willing to make to keep them and others safe and healthy. I'm sadder still for people who have lost loved ones. I'm sad for people who are isolated and don't have the ability to connect with friends or family, even virtually. I think that must be the hardest thing of all. I don't know you all personally. I don't know of your situations. I assume they are different from my own. And I'm sending good vibes out to you all for health, happiness, love and light, and virtual arms around you filled with warmth. Right, now... Last week, Pierre happened upon a pretty sweet new old sword. And then they crossed paths, literally, with a man traveling alone. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 11 Someone Else Knew the party watched the strange, dark-haired young man as he rode south through the alpine meadow. Kier wiped away the strands of hair that mist had stuck to her cheek. "'What did he say to you, Kier?' Skimnoddle asked after the odd young man had gone. "'How should I know?' Kier replied crossly. "'What language was that?' the halfling went on. "'It is strange,' Terry said thoughtfully. "'It sounded familiar, and yet not so. I could not place it.' To mask her discomfort at having nearly given herself away, Kier said, Why were you so rude to him, Derry? You told me to be patient and polite with people. Her friend accepted the rebuke, though he scowled and half turned in his saddle to watch the departing man. I make no apologies. I didn't trust him, he said. He rubbed me the wrong way, that is all. Such arrogance. A lone man riding out to us where he could have stayed hidden if he hadn't had some reason to find out who we were. "'Are you suggesting he was a spy?' Jaskelin asked. Derry shrugged again. "'I don't know. I just didn't feel right about him.' "'That is a fair analysis,' the mage said. Kier said nothing. She was struggling with the bewilderment she felt yet could not speak about. No, the young man was not a spy. She knew it unequivocally, but was unable to tell the others. It was a terrific challenge to pretend she did not understand those words that the stranger had spoken just to her so unexpectedly. And what in the world had he meant by it? Surely he couldn't have known she... No, the look on his face afterward had shown her that he didn't think she had understood him. And then there was Derry. Why had he been so stiff with the fellow? His reasoning was just and sensible, but she didn't believe he had been entirely truthful. A pity she would never see the stranger again. She would be best to forget him. But how could she? It was not every day that a handsome warrior came upon her so suddenly and revealed an ability to speak dark elvish. She had always thought that Brendau and herself were the only non-dark elves who could speak the language— 
unless, unless the stranger was Dark Elvish. Common knowledge said that Valraker was the only one left. If this young man was proof to the contrary, Kier could not tell. His height, were she able to guess at it as he sat on his horse, was no clue, as dark elves were on average no taller than humans. His facial features were just as easily human as elvish, oval face with a scar on the left cheek, tanned skin. The only feature that would have tipped her off would have been the man's ears, but for the fact that they were covered by long, thick black hair. Whether it was his mother tongue or not, Huran and Dane had spoken to her in Dark Elvish, and there was no way anyone with close enough ties to the Dark Elves to know their language could possibly be a spy for Dregor. The two were incompatible concepts. And the way the Dark Elvish words tumbled off his tongue, he must have learned from a master his accent was so perfect. How mystical, musical, startling out a reaction she had been forced to repress— "'My heart is yours, fair lady,' he had said. "'What a pity she would never see him again.'" That night during his watch, Derry stood with his back to the fire. Hands clasped behind his back, they tapped a rhythm against each other. He stepped a few paces to the left and stared outward into the darkness again. He tried to listen for unwanted noise within the usual nighttime noises, but his thoughts drowned out all other sound. Who did that handsome young wayfarer think he was, looking at Kier that way and speaking to her instead of him, and speaking such things to her, too? Derry did not understand a word of it, but the man's implication was clear. The captain was all the more annoyed, knowing how Kier loved being singled out in that way. Oh, she feigned irritation, but he knew better. Derry shut his eyes and shook his head to loosen the notions in his mind. I shouldn't be angry about the sword. It had nothing to do with him, but why did Kier always get what she wanted? They stopped traveling at her insistence, losing an hour of travel time, and she wound up with a gorgeous new weapon. Stolen off a dead body, Jeskelin had said. Derry shuddered. Kier hadn't a care. The disturbance of a corpse meant nothing to her. Kier was so distracted these days. Derry had intended to chat with her at the earliest opportunity about her escape from the caverns. He wasn't sure any more if there was a point. If he spoke to her, she would only snap at him. Jeskelin had said she trusted and respected him. Derry was not convinced that was the case any longer. The mountain stream turned Kier's hands red with cold as she filled the last of the water skins. The stream fed the Sea of Kun at the east end, but the company intended to journey through the mountains to join the sea farther west. When the skin was plump with the clear, fresh water, she corked it and slung it onto her shoulder and up over her head. She now carried three on each side and tested her balance before standing fully upright. Fennel handed her the full pails, and she braced herself as he reloaded his arms with the wood he'd gathered. Each stick clopped noisily onto the pile he held in his left arm, then his right arm joined it underneath the pile, and the two headed back to camp. Kier stopped short when she saw the man standing at the entrance to the path. With their arms full, neither of them had time to draw sword or bow before he had raised his hand in a gesture of peace. "'I'm sorry to have alarmed you, but it couldn't be helped. I only wish to speak,' the light brown-haired man said quietly." He looked to be about thirty and was clothed as a traveller. Only cloth armour showed between the folds of his brown cloak, yet a sword was poorly concealed at his hip. 
Pierre lowered the pails of water to the uneven, root-protruding ground. "'Why did you come upon us so discreetly, then?' she said. "'I can't help it if I walk quietly,' he shrugged. "'I didn't want to catch the attention of every living thing in the forest.' "'You must have been aware of our whole group. Why not approach them or wait for us to get back there?' put in Fennel. "'Because I don't want to speak to the whole group. I only want to speak to you,' he focused on Kier. "'Our chief wants a word with you.' Kier frowned. "'Where have I heard that before? Why didn't he come himself, then?' The messenger smiled patiently. "'Oh, come on. We aren't children. You know that isn't how things work. "'Who's your chief?' It's not my position to say any more than I was instructed. Are you part of the group that attacked us in the cold fells? Fennel said, having unloaded his sticks again. I wouldn't call it an attack. It was meant to get your attention. Kier snorted. That's ridiculous. Your aim was too good. She shifted the lingering stiffness in her shoulder muscles. He shrugged. That was poor aim. The man who hit you has been reprimanded. The man looked over his shoulder as if he'd heard something. He lowered his voice. Look, I don't have time. I was sent to bring you, only you, for a short time. He has a message for you. No one of your group will be hurt if you come with me. You're a jackass, Kier said. We aren't children, remember? Our chief can be very persistent. Half a dozen archers are waiting in the woods, poised to wipe out the rest of your company if you don't come along. Kier's stomach lurched, but she fixed her smile. Shit. I think you're bluffing. The messenger shrugged again. Your choice. Fennel stepped forward, about to speak, but Kier held up a warning hand, her mind racing. He wanted only her. What if he isn't bluffing? They'd be slaughtered. Why me? Put it this way, the stranger said softly. You killed our former chief. The new one wants to make an arrangement with an old friend. You have bargaining power. Kier stared at him. Fennel whispered, I don't buy it. I don't have all day, the messenger's tone hardened. The archers are poised to fire on my signal. Kier stood dumbstruck. He was part of Ronav's band of cutthroats. Ronav had referred to them as his council. Even if she didn't know this man, he'd likely seen her before. Kier shuddered to recollect how badly things had gone the last time she'd appeared among that group. No, going alone into that circle was not a good choice. Yet the instigator of that affair was good and dead. Who had taken Ronav's place and would want to bargain with her? What did bargaining power mean? What makes you, or him for that matter, so sure I'd be in an all-fire hurry to get reacquainted with that bunch? Our last get-together wasn't exactly a party. No, not for you, anyway. He shook his head thoughtfully. Believe me, the new chief has a few more smarts and very different priorities. He sounded so disgusted at the comparison with Ronav that Kier very nearly believed he was sincere. Kier saw Fennel's fingers twitching out of the corner of her eye. Her torso was rigid with indecision. Ronav was dead, and so was another of their own who'd met an unfortunate end just prior to Kier's dramatic exit. How likely were they to mess with her after that? She sized up her opponent and thought of her new weapon. How sure of herself did she feel? Well, never mind, the man went on. If you don't want to bargain about Alon's life, the chief can just as easily tell his message to the other side. Then you can explain it all to your beloved Valraker after Alon is dead. He raised his fingers to his mouth, about to whistle. 
Fennel's sword whipped out of its sheath, but the other man was just as fast. He parried Fennel's swipe, and Kier ducked away to avoid the swinging blades. Fennel's first choice was not his sword, but Kier suspected swordplay was the messenger's second skill, too. Fennel sidestepped, and his opponent missed an overhead strike. The elf smashed the flat of his blade on the other's hand, loosening his grip so the man's sword fell to the ground. Only seconds after drawing his weapon, Fennel's sword tip was at the stranger's chest. The man shook out his numbed fingers. "'Wait!' Kier said, holding up her hands. "'Wait!' The messenger eyed her cautiously from his half-crouching position. She let out a breath. "'Prove it!' "'Kier, what are you—' Fennel said. He looked at her as if she were crazy. And maybe she was. She stopped him with a glare. The man cocked his head. Do you think Dregor is unaware that his greatest enemy is fragile? He spoke low and quickly. If Alon's condition doesn't improve, the Barthelin hold on Rydris will grow more tenuous, and Dregor will use his advantage. Now do you want to hear the chief's message, or don't you? Kier frowned. It wasn't exactly proof, but... Where are we going? He blinked. A short walk. Let me warn you, though, that if your friends try to follow you now, we'll flatten them. Damn. Were there really six archers? She had a good sword, knew how to use it, and if things got out of hand, well, I'll think of something. She had to find out what this chief knew about Alon Mare. She also had to enlist the help of her friends without dooming them. She turned to Fennel, whose flaming blue eyes flashed frantically at her. How to persuade him? Fennel, Kier, don't do this. I've got him. Fennel, I have to. Our party's in danger. You can't believe... Listen, I need to go and hear what this man's chief has to say. It's important. I'll only be gone a short time. Fennel shook his head slowly, but lowered his sword. I don't like it, Kier. It's not my favorite idea either, she whispered. I don't think we have a choice. Hurry back. Tell the others what's happening, but be careful. She eyed the messenger cautiously as he slowly rose and retrieved his weapon. She bobbed underneath the straps of the water skins and laid them on the ground. If he isn't lying about the snipers in the woods, you're all in danger. Sniff them out and track me as soon as you can. She fervently hoped it wouldn't take long. All right, Fennel said, but I don't like it. Kier turned to the man whose eyes shifted back from the elf to Kier. He caught her expectant gaze and cocked his head in instruction for her to come along. Over her shoulder, she nodded encouragingly to Fennel as he watched her, his sword loose in his hand and his brow furrowed. She followed the young man as he plunged into the woods. Fennel watched the bushes close in around Kier. There had to have been a better way to handle this. He'd already bested the man— Two to one, they could have easily taken him prisoner. He sheathed his sword and hurried stealthily back through the woods, alert for any signs of said archers. If he'd been more alert, he'd have heard the attacker earlier. If he hadn't been distracted, he'd have reacted quicker. Being an elf, he didn't completely fail to defend himself. He was just too slow. Do you have a name? Kier asked, brushing aside huckleberry bushes as she plodded, stepping carefully on the downward sloping ground. Or does your chief just say, hey, average height guy? Her leader chuckled through his nose. <laughs> I'm Harley. Ah, Harley the messenger. That's very nice. Are you always this sarcastic? Pretty much. 
she grinned. Kier had an odd feeling that she could grow to like the fellow if given the chance. You said it was a short walk to where your chief is? Harley pushed through a last stand of mountain ash into a clearing. No, I didn't say that. It is, however, a short walk to my horse. Kier's heart dropped. Damn. All right, so they had to go a little farther away. Things were not out of hand. She still had her sword, and it was one-on-one. -on -one. Two horses waited in the clearing. Nice of you to provide me with a magnificent steed, she said coolly. He shook his head. Sorry, you get to ride with me. Whose is that, then, she said, just as the sound of twigs snapping through the bushes startled her. I took care of the elf, said the lanky man who now joined them. Kier's heart sank lower. What have I done? What do you mean by that? She demanded and tried to break away back through the forest. Her path was blocked. Don't worry, girly, said the skinny fellow. He'll come round soon. Not soon enough, damn it. She fixed Harley with a cold stare. So much for growing to like him. At least he wasn't as bad as Con. Do you prefer in front or in the rear of our magnificent steed? Harley offered with a grandiose gesture. The mahogany animal raised its head and blinked in greeting. "'I prefer to ride alone,' she said, increasingly conscious that she'd bungled things. "'Why don't you two double up?' Harley actually laughed. "'Score one for me.' "'Fine. Since that option isn't open, I'll take the rear.' That would at least keep her free to slip off and run. Prospects weren't too bleak yet. Harley chirruped to the mare, and they were off, followed by the other horsemen." They hadn't been on the road more than three minutes when Kier heard the wicker of horses from farther along. Not from the direction of our camp. She craned her neck around Harley's shoulder to see whom he was waving to. Success, boys, he called, and abruptly turned the horse off the road onto a smaller path to the south, and as they changed direction, Kier saw the three other men on horseback who'd been waiting for Harley and now wove into the procession. Nice day for a ride, she said flatly as she acknowledged she'd been duped. They'd be able to cover quite a bit of ground before Fennel was found. What's taking them so long, Derry said, more impatient than concerned. Oh, it hasn't been that long, Giskellen said. Besides, you know what those two are like when they get talking. Derry stopped his whetstone mid-swipe. That's the trouble. "'We're in a forest, for God's sake. Why does it take so long to find wood?' His stomach growled audibly. Resuming his steady motion, he said, "'Skimnoddle, will you please go tell Kier and Fennel to hurry up?' The halfling tottered off through the trees. Back and forth they rode on the switchback trail up the mountainside. No words were spoken between the men. Kier's trust of Harley having plummeted, she was unwilling to risk dialogue, but as if he'd read her mind, her host spoke. It's all right, you know, I wasn't lying. Kier didn't respond. Hunter really does have a message for you, that's all it is. Really? Well, since you're unlikely to give me a hint what it's about, I suppose there's no sense in discussing it, is there? He laughed. <laughs> you weren't kidding about being sarcastic pretty much all the time. I take my sarcasm very seriously. They'd reached the top of the switchback path where the sky opened as the trees thinned. Thick rolling gray clouds hung low and heavy, compressing the air. The path now drew them due south. I was only trying to reassure you, he said. Well, gee, thanks. You threatened me with fictitious archers, you knocked out my friend, and you've taken me hostage. I feel very reassured. He shrugged. 
Fair enough. He was smiling over his shoulder at her as he pulled up by an outcropping of granite flanked by hemlocks. Here we are. She slithered off the back of the mount, glancing uncertainly at the other men who'd joined them. Dust billowed around them as they dismounted. Kier heard someone call, Tell Hunter she's here. Kier felt a tap on her arm. It was Harley beckoning her to follow him. You're a weasel, she hurled at him. As I said before, we aren't children. You wouldn't have come with us if I'd just asked nicely. Did you leave some men behind to snag my friends when they come looking for me? I've done what I was asked to do. I don't care a flying fart for your friends. Nice use of alliteration, Kier muttered automatically. She heard Harley chuckle as they passed round the rock and the trees. They stepped down a slope that opened up before a lovely, tranquil lake dotted with yellow pond lilies and framed by low bushes and the reddish blooms of marsh sankfoil. The water was still and black, reflecting the dark clouds and hills beyond without a ripple. Whiskey jacks flitted about, expecting donations from the new arrivals, which told Kier that the birds were not unaccustomed to seeing people around here. About half a dozen armed travelers paused briefly in their business, long enough to give Kier the feeling that not all of them understood her arrival. Two people in particular stood out, a man and a woman, so alike they must be siblings, both with short curly hair the color of coal and eyes to match. They sat side by side. The man offered no expression, but the woman smiled a little. Not a smile that gave Kier any feeling of welcome. Not disdainful, for that required self-righteousness. Hers was a smile more of a humble, indifferent superiority, and Kier was brushed by the briefest chill of fear. Harley placed himself on a fallen log and opened a sack of nuts and raisins. He held the bag out to her, but she declined. "'Suit yourself,' he said, his fingers dipping into the bag. Kier relaxed slightly. She was in full control. Nobody seemed too concerned about her. She looked out over the lake and wondered how long she'd have to wait. She turned at the sound of hoofbeats from around the corner of the lakeside. "'He's coming,' someone said, and suddenly Kier felt her arms pinioned at her sides by unseen hands. "'Hey!' she cried. She struggled against the force that held her, but it only tightened. She searched for Harley so she could bestow a what-the-hell-is-going-on-here-you-son-of-a-bitch look on him. It's what Hunter asked for. Shit, where did Ronav's band get magic? And who in the group of rogues could wield it? No one was paying attention but Harley and the two siblings who watched the proceedings with nothing more than mild curiosity. No one looked like a mage. And damn it, she still couldn't help liking Harley as he sat there nonchalantly tossing raisins to the whiskey jacks. The horseman emerged from behind the bushes, and Kier felt very little surprise at the identity of Hunter. Captain! Skimnoddle's voice sifted through the trees. Derry leapt to his feet and ran toward it, joined by Jeskellen. They soon came upon Skimnoddle, supporting Fennel by the arm. Blood dripped down the elf's face, oozing from a wound on the forehead. He carried his sword clumsily in his other hand. "'Good God, Fennel, what happened?' exclaimed Derry. "'Where is she?' They helped the pale, woozy elf into camp and lowered him to the ground. Derry fetched his kit and was at Fennel's side instantly. "'Skimnoddle, Janik, go find her,' Derry ordered, checking Fennel's wound. "'No,' Fennel said, waving his arm rather than shake his head. "'Gone.' 
A series of images flashed through Derry's mind. Kami's offer, Kier's new sword, the mysterious words of the young stranger— and was shocked at how quickly he let himself jump to conclusions, stopping himself before he could voice an accusation of her inconstancy. Instead, he said, Who did this? He mopped the blood and assessed the damage. Dunno, some guy. I didn't see him. Kier went with the other one. His eyes filled with alarm, and he started to rise. His dizzy head forbade it. Check the woods. He said, Archers, ready to shoot if she didn't go. "'And you believed that?' Janik said. "'No, but Kier did.' Fennel's hands trembled and he clutched them into fists. "'He said his chief—' He pressed his fists to his cheeks. "'Who? What chief?' Derry said, grabbing the elf by his arms. Skimnuddle had risen to his full, unimpressive height. "'A man appeared at the stream. He had a message for Kier that his chief wanted to speak to her alone.' He repeated the threat about the snipers in the woods. "'I tried to reason with her,' the elf said. "'I had him at sword point. We could have taken him down.' Fennel screwed his fists into his eyes. "'She told me to come back and tell you and look for the snipers in case they were here and, and then track her. "'You know how persuasive she can be,' he said defensively. "'She said it was for the best.' Fennel had heard his attacker approach and drew his sword, but turned around only in time to receive a heavy stick in the head. Derry's whole body seemed to sag as he dropped his arms to his sides. You little fool! Derry didn't really care that Fennel thought he was referring to him. Derry bandaged the gash. This man was so convincing that Kier believed him. He sprinkled some powder into a cup of water and made Fennel drink it. "'It wasn't really that he was convincing,' Fennel pleaded. "'I think she honestly thought she was doing the right thing, "'that if she didn't go, they'd kill you.' Derry darted a look at Fennel "'and tossed his blanket and saddle up onto Donagill's back. "'I can't believe you didn't yell or anything. "'I can't believe she didn't pull out that fancy new sword of hers.' "'Fennel was too confused to protest, and Derry plowed on. "'I know you didn't intend to get hit in the head, "'but now she's been gone for ages. "'She could be d- "'He stopped short. "'What are you standing around for? "'You're coming with me. "'I don't know which way she went.' "'Fennel drained his cup and climbed bareback onto Layout. "'Skimnoddle's cries of, "'I shall save some dinner for all three of you,' "'echoed behind them. The last time she saw him, he stood before his lord, pale and defeated, as Kian Barthelin set down his judgment. Frederick lost everything—his sword, his knighthood, his rank, his home. Kian exiled him out of shale. He'd left without a word to anyone, even his sister Acadia. The former captain of the shale guard galloped up and slid from the saddle barely after reining in. His swift smoothness would have been a delight for Kier to watch had the circumstances been otherwise. But any favorable opinion she had of him had been as brief as a single spark from flint and steel and equally unrecoverable. He strode purposefully toward her, drawing his sword. Acadia didn't blame Kier, she'd said so, but Frederick certainly did. In spite of her efforts, her composure slipped. She drew her head back in retreat, and her eyes widened to see his weapon rise to horizontal and approach her throat like an arrow in slow motion. She read the vengeance in Frederick's face, sucked in her last breath, and believed she was about to die. The sword tip was an icicle against her throat. 
the trickle of blood running down like the tip of the shard of ice melting with the heat of her body. His fingers toyed with the hilt. She flinched at the slight movement. His hand trembled with desire to complete the motion. He did not thrust. She blinked slowly as if the flicker of her eyes would prompt him to make a sudden move. Her neck began to stiffen with the struggle to pull away. Her legs were rooted to the spot, and the invisible hands were unyielding. Harley watched with interest. Frederick continued to pierce her with his glare. Although now she saw the wheels turning inside his head, he wanted to kill her. She knew that without a glimmer of doubt. But the fact that he hadn't already done so spoke volumes. She risked a breath. "'Lovely to see you, too,' she said. She was sure she heard a snort from Harley. Frederick's hackles rose, and she thought, "'Oops, might have made a mistake there.' But he still did not kill her, so she tried again. "'So when did you change your name? Right away there, after we last saw each other?' This time his eyes registered defeat, and she saw that he would not kill her. Could not even. Under orders from someone?' He must be, or else he could not have had any qualms about impaling her. He lowered the sword and her neck could finally relax. Cocky bitch, he growled. He hitched his head to one side, and as suddenly as her body had been immobilized, she was now released. Harley and the siblings moved away, stepping down the slope toward the lake and out of earshot. She was left alone with Frederick, fully armed. She shook her arms to make sure she could still move them. He removed his helm. His red hair was longer and looked like it might be a bit grayer since their parting. Careful about being so gentlemanly, she said. They might start to guess you're not truly one of them. She used a rag from her pouch to stop the ooze of blood from the nick in her throat. They already know that, he snapped. Then he spoke more quietly. But I don't make a habit of talking about it. She wiped the blood where it had run down toward her chest. So who are you working for these days? He looked at her sharply. How did you... I won't answer that. What brings you and your little friends to the guarded realm? She tucked the rag back into her pouch. He had asked casually enough, but since he had known where she was, she couldn't believe he didn't already know why she was there. She folded her arms across her chest. Look, Frederick, we're in rather a hurry. You didn't bring me here to catch up. What do you want? There's a message... She scoffed. Oh, sure. I suppose you want me to send your regards to your sister, or to Kian. You already showed your regard for them. The sword tip materialized at her throat again. She definitely made a mistake this time. She could have taken a step backward, but didn't. You don't know a damned thing about my regard, he said in a voice so low it might have been in her mind. She made a mental note of the comment. You have no idea what you... He cut himself off, breathing heavily, and moistened his lips. His voice came tight and hoarse. Like I said, there's a message. Well, out with it, then, and quit wasting my time. He paused, and the guttering in his eyes showed her his struggle with his desire to kill her. With the sword still touching her throat, he spoke carefully and deliberately the words he had memorized. Kier heard him speak the words and for a brief moment all she felt was confusion. She knew those words. But why were they coming from the mouth of Frederick Hayland? The confusion evolved into dizzying shock. 
She knew those words. But nowhere in her memory had they been used by anyone but herself. For it was her language, the only tongue she spoke when she arrived in Hrath at the age of three. Nobody had ever used it but her. How? All blood drained from her face. Her whole head felt both cold and hot and grew numb. Frederick's face was blurred by a sparkling redness in the air around her that changed quickly to black. What did you say? Frederick was staring at her intently as her vision cleared. A hush fell over her like a blanket of snow, and she noticed her sword was in her hands, but it was unsteady, either because she hadn't had a chance to practice with it, or because Frederick had spoken in her language. Then the woman with the black hair was before her. The hand the woman put on Kier's forehead was neither warm nor cool. A sharp jolt went through her head, making her ears burn and shot down her entire body. Her knees wobbled alarmingly, the earth rocked, and there was nothing she could grasp to steady herself. Her legs gave way, knees smashing down, and she pitched to the ground, the dirt cool against her cheek. Hunter had been told to take note of her reaction. He was astonished by the effect of his words. All at once he smiled, knowing this was what Golgothar was hoping for. Hunter had been successful in his first mission. Then the smile faded. This would probably mean he was still not allowed to kill her. The sword she had drawn, though, what a beauty! He had never seen its like. Here was a little trinket he could take from her, since he couldn't have her life. The red jeweled pommel sparkled even in the diffused light of cloud cover. He looked over his shoulder to where Misty had rejoined her brother. Sheathing his own weapon, he crouched and slowly reached for Kier's and withdrew it from where it had landed beneath her. The silver of the blade was startlingly bright, bright as moonlight reflected off glass. Two-handed, it was perfectly balanced, almost weightless as he rose and tried a few swings through the air. Noiselessly, it sliced the humidity that hung around him. A stabbing motion or two later, he felt it change. Perhaps he was experiencing his own reaction to the strain of the encounter with Kier, but it was almost as if the sword were getting heavier. With a heave, he waved it again, and his arm ached with the effort of it. In a matter of half a minute since picking it up and proclaiming it weightless, Hunter was nearly unable to wield the sword. It was all he could do to keep it off the ground. And what was that pain in his hand? He didn't want to give up, but the weight forced him to let the sword tip hit the earth. He simply could not lift it. And suddenly he yanked his hand away from the hilt, letting it clatter to the ground. The hilt, he finally realized, was flaming hot. His hands were already red and puffy. In puzzlement and fear of Kier and her mystifying weapon, he backed away and called to his company to prepare to leave. A spattering of raindrops began to hammer tiny craters in the dust, the big drops splashing her prone body with mud. Harley stopped near where she lay and said, Are we just going to... But Hunter snarled at him. Harley shrugged and went to his horse for his kit. He slapped a quick salve on the burned hands and bound them. But when he asked how Hunter had acquired the injury, the chief hollered, Don't ask so goddamn many questions! Hunter didn't need a new weapon after all. As the sword fighter lay unconscious in the dust, the lake underwent a change. 
A storm wind stirred up a torrent of waves where Kier had earlier admired its glass-like stillness, and raindrops as large as hazelnuts pelted into it, any fish lurked in safety near the bottom. After a time, the storm abated. When Kier awoke, her back was drenched, and she was very much alone in the silent wood. Frederick and his men, and woman, were long gone, and the air was fresh with a wet dirt smell. She looked up, then sat up, absently noting the dusty ground where she had lain, surrounded by mud. The thick clouds filtered too much of the sunlight for her to tell how far it had moved. Fifteen minutes? Two hours? She couldn't tell. It had to have been long enough for a soaking rain to pour. She wondered about it for a millisecond before Frederick's words flooded her mind again. Twenty years since she had walked out of a cornfield into the Halliden's farm. Twenty years since she had spoken that tongue aloud, and she had never forgotten it, though it had faded to a distant memory. Sometimes she'd wondered if she hadn't made it up. Apparently not. Someone else spoke it too, and had taught Frederick Hayland the single but all too significant sentence, We know who you are. The implication of those words hit her like a tidal wave. Then the woman had done something, and she'd collapsed. And now, fully awake again, the mere thought of it grabbed her by the throat and drew her up to standing. Someone else knew her language, and that someone, whoever it was, must know where it came from. Knees wobbling still, confusion and irrational fury took over, shutting out all other thought. She retrieved her sword from the ground, wiped it off, and slammed it into its scabbard. By hellfire, who had taught him those words? She darted up the hill to find a trace of which direction Frederick had gone. Their hoofprints were unmistakable on the southern trail into the woods. She tore along the path after them. Jeez, that's twice now that people have spoken to Kier in foreign languages. What the hell is up with that? She's confused. I would be too, and not thinking rationally, but I don't blame her for following after Frederick. I mean, she did leave Hrath to learn more about who she is, and here is this jackass. Why does it have to be Frederick of all people? Next week, Kier will question that choice, and guess what? So will Derry. Merriest of Christmases to those of you who celebrate Christmas? Happiest of all other holidays that can possibly be celebrated at this time of year? Winter solstice among them? Thank you so much to my family, whom I love. Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thank you to all of you for listening. Hey, please hit like and share and subscribe. And maybe if you've got a moment, jot a review of Gatekeeper's Key on Goodreads or any other retail platform. That would be greatly appreciated. All the best. Now go be fantastic.